Good afternoon. Welcome. Can people hear me in the back of the auditorium? Okay, great. Barely? Okay, good. I got the microphone on, so it should be loud enough. Well, welcome, and thank you for all finding us here, and you've survived the detour, uh, which is kind of complex, but uh, fortunately we had guides along the way. And I want to thank the Aging Resource Center uh, for hosting this conference this afternoon. And some of you are very familiar faces. I know a lot of you are my patients. And um, other people I recognize from other talks that I've given at the Aging Resource Center. And usually, I'll speak over there. We have a very intimate uh, conference room that holds about 30 people. But I thought that this particular topic of plant-based diets was going to be a broader appeal. So I wanted to have a bigger room to um, have start this conversation. And it's also a very complex topic. And I know that you folks come from a variety of backgrounds. So I thought it would help me, before we get started, if I could learn a little bit about who's in the crowd. And so first of all, I wondered if there are any vegetarians in the crowd. OK, quite a few. How about vegans? Wow, a lot of vegans, too. Excellent. Well, quasi-vegans. That's, that's good. Quasi. OK, that's going to be helpful. Um, any dietitians here? One dietitian. OK, great. Um, any health professionals? Many health professionals. Excellent. OK. Any health coaches? Great. Health coaches. Wonderful. That's kind of a new health profession that we have here at DHMC. And uh, we're using them in my practice in general internal medicine. And they're excellent in terms of guiding people and coaching them along the way. So fortunately, we have a fairly long period of time for this talk today. Um, we reserve the room until 5.30. I plan to talk for about an hour and then have lots of time for questions. I've given other talks to the, through the Aging Resource Center, and people always have lots of questions. And so we'll use that opportunity at the end for some dialogue. I'm going to try something new today. I do have a video um, in the slide set. And so we've set it up so that I think it's going to work. Um, we've had, and if it doesn't work, I can kind of paraphrase uh, what the video says. So we'll get started here. My objectives today are to describe a whole foods plant-based diet. I'm going to discuss some of the universal benefits of eating more vegetables, fruits, and legumes. And I bring this up because one person submitted a question ahead of time saying um, that are there any universal benefits? So I will be addressing that. I will be describing some strategies for how to slow the aging of our arteries, which relates to everybody in the room, <coughs> young and old. And I'll be discussing mostly the why today of plant-based diets, but I will talk a little bit about the how, a little bit about implementation. And that's another very complex topic that we could talk about for a long time. I did, uh, courtesy of one of the uh, excellent dietitians here, I do have a handout with a resource list. And hopefully people pick that up on their way in. It's very comprehensive. And I will be mentioning some of those resources as we go along. So we all face the question, it's, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, what's for dinner tonight? <clears throat> we all probably have given that a little bit of thought. 
And when I think about the question of what's for dinner, I think about mindfulness and mindful eating patterns. And the first aspect of mindfulness is planning. Um, when, at this time of day, have we planned our dinner before we left the house? In other words, is there food in the refrigerator or in the cabinets that we're thinking about having for dinner tonight? Or are we on a day when we're going to either just kind of wing it? In other words, kind of, we might either be on autopilot, we got up, we didn't have time to plan in the morning. Maybe we're just hoping to kind of get through the day and then pick up something at the store or at a restaurant on the way home. And we know that any time that you shop when you're hungry and stressed, people are less likely to make uh, good food choices. So that's the first aspect of what's for dinner. And the second one is when we actually sit down to eat, the food in front of us, either on our plate or in our bowl. Uh, when we talk, think about mindful eating, we think about are we stopping to truly taste the food that's in front of us, or are we just eating mindlessly? In other words, we might be eating while we're reading the newspaper, or watching TV, or looking at Facebook. And sometimes when you're doing that kind of eating, we don't really stop to taste the food. We're just kind of mindlessly eating along. And when we do that, it's sometimes hard to recognize when we're really full. So we're going to come back to this concept of mindful eating a little bit later on. So in terms of thinking about, well, what's for dinner tonight, uh, that leads us to some of the special challenges for older adults. And there are many. It's definitely a challenge to cook for one or two people. And this is what I face in my you know, day-to-day -day counseling of people as a geriatrician. You know, People are used to making, feeding the whole family. They're used to feeling like, well, I've got to make a whole meal. And it feels kind of anticlimactic just to make a small serving of, of this or that. And also, if you look at cookbooks, the recipes are rarely serves one or two. It's usually serving four or six. And sometimes it's just a challenge to do the math in your head and, and try to winnow it down. For older folks, they often rely on convenience foods. And there are some excellent convenience foods out there. But what's really easy, particularly in the wintertime, is just to open up a can of soup now, or to eat a frozen entree. There are some really healthy convenience foods, like those bags of salad. If you've never tried them, they're great. They're already washed. I do recommend that you wash them again. But there you are. You've got this wonderful variety of greens. Uh, there's the old frozen bag of spinach, a wonderful thing you can add to just about anything. And you don't have to buy the fresh spinach and let it watch it wilt in your refrigerator. Um, not to mention frozen berries. So there are many really good uh, convenience foods out there. In terms of older adults, they typically experience a decline in their sensations of smell and taste. And what this leads to is oftentimes kind of a poor appetite. The food just isn't as appealing as it used to be. And as people get older, they don't taste sweet as intensely as before, so they actually end up with an increased desire for sweets. And that can lead to eating more empty calories. And limited income is an issue for some people. And we certainly have to keep that in mind. Often I'll hear from patients that they want to buy more fruits and vegetables, but they're expensive. And how are they going to stretch their food dollars to make it through the rest of the month? There are more challenges. As people get older, their calorie needs decrease. But their requirement for good nutrients actually stays the same. We know that in seniors, protein needs may increase slightly. And this is important to prevent loss of muscle mass. Oftentimes, people have dental problems. So they have trouble chewing salads and 
chewing tough foods or hard foods. And a lot of the plant foods we're going to talk about are stalks and things that are, can be a challenge to chew. So when we look at an optimal diet for seniors, it needs to be what we call nutrient dense, that the bites have to be meaningful bites and uh, nutrient rich food. And we also have to minimize salt because salt and excessive salt intake is harmful to our arteries. So these are real challenges as we think about trying to uh, look at a plant-based diet. So in terms of uh, what we're gonna eat for dinner, Michael Pollan is a food journalist and he wrote a book talking about we should eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. It's kind of a slogan, but there's a lot of truth to it. Because in terms of food, we want to eat real food, whole food, not food that's been heavily processed in a factory. We definitely don't want to eat too much. And we're going to come back to that, this concept of eating till you're 80% full. Has anyone heard of the concept of the blue zones? <clears throat> Good, one couple of hands are up. Good, we're gonna talk about the blue zones a little bit um, and the concept of eating not too much. And then mostly plants is the focus of our talk. A little bit in terms of my background. I'm a graduate of the Geisel School of Medicine. I've been an internist and geriatrician here at DHMC for a long time. I just got my 25 year pin a couple of days ago and that's a big milestone. And in terms of my practice of medicine, as those of you who are my patients are aware, I really think that what people eat matters a lot in terms of their health. And I'm always asking people for like a 24-hour diet recall, because I want to know what did they eat for breakfast, what do they eat for lunch, uh, what they eat, how they prepare it. it it's important to me. Um, and it becomes part of our dialogue over time. Um, I'm also involved with medical education. Of the medical students, as well as I have a role with undergraduates and with the interns and residents. And some of you may or may not be aware that I'm also involved with global health work in Nicaragua and in other countries in Central America. And there, the whole conversation about nutrition is along a very uh, different lines because instead of having too many opportunities of food to eat, people are often suffering from hunger and malnutrition. Um, I just want to mention that I was involved with editing a book called Building Partnerships in the Americas, where there are chapters on Honduras, Nicaragua, Haiti, three of the countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere which suffer from the greatest poverty and malnutrition. So we have a lot in the book about nutritional um, optimization in third world countries. So that's all another interest of mine. So as I said, I've been practicing medicine here for a long time. And then in 2008, Dr. Caldwell Esselstein from the Cleveland Clinic came and gave grand rounds right in this auditorium. And we have a weekly education conference for the whole Department of Internal Medicine. And I had not heard of him uh, prior to that conference. But the topic was prevent and reverse heart disease. So I thought that's, that's right up my alley. And he also, after his lecture, he came in and had lunch with our group of internists. So we had the opportunity to talk with him some more. And at the time, I thought his approach really was very revolutionary. Uh, he talked about not just treating the symptoms of heart disease, but trying to prevent it and get to the root cause. But after, especially after you know, having our, our lunch conference with him, I really thought that he had done some very important work. So I went out and bought his book um, and read it. And then I started approaching some of my patients who had really high cholesterol and advanced heart disease about trying a plant-based uh, diet approach. 
And I have to admit that I had some stunning success stories with people who wanted to embrace this approach. Not everybody did. There were a lot of people who I would talk to about, hey, would you consider ditching the dairy and, and ditching the meat? And they would just look at me like, no way. You know, they would rather take their statin. So I said, OK, um, you know, this is not for you. But other people either didn't tolerate the statin or um, were interested in, in working with their diet. So I, I've had a variety of um, uptake among, a, among patients. However, in 2011, a documentary came out uh, called Forks Over Knives. And this documentary has essentially revolutionized how I do my nutritional counseling. Because I don't have time in an office visit to give like an hour's lecture about uh, nutrition. You know, I'm, I'm really trying to fit this into little sound bites, so to speak. So when the DVD came out, I could just hand people a DVD or say, this is something I think you'd really benefit from watching. Uh, we have a health library on the fourth floor. It's right above that little coffee shop. If you've never been up there, it's got a nice uh, variety of resources. So I contacted them, and they got three copies of the DVD. Um, the DVD is also available on Netflix. And for the savvy people, it's free on Hulu. I couldn't figure out myself probably how to get to Hulu, but the, a lot of the house officers and students, they go right to Hulu and, and can watch it that night. So the metaphor is using your fork to prevent heart disease rather than a scalpel to do bypass surgery or to cut out cancer. So I think it's a really strong metaphor. And people watch the DVD, and then oftentimes they come back saying, wow, that really made an impression on them. So if you haven't seen it, I do highly recommend it. Now, in terms of nutrition, it's obviously a personal uh, topic for me as well. And in terms of my nutritional journey, First of all, my mother's in the audience today. So thanks, Mom, for always serving us lots of wonderful fruits and vegetables. I'll admit, when I came home from school, there was always a cup in the refrigerator with carrots and celery sticks. We also had ice cream and hot cocoa and things like that, too. But there were always vegetables and fruits present. My dad always had a garden. I grew up in New Jersey, so we had those Jersey tomatoes. I did grow up as an omnivore. My favorite foods were meatballs and spaghetti, meatloaf. I would eat fish only if it was covered with SpaghettiOs, totally <laughs> covered with SpaghettiOs. And the only time my mother served us beans was beans and franks. That was a definite favorite meal, uh, beans and franks. So um, I did become a vegetarian during medical school. And the story behind that is that when you start medical school, the first week, you get your cadaver. Actually, it's the first day. Okay, and there you are. You're nervous, you know, and there are there are four of you in a group, and you're assigned to a cadaver, and God bless the people that donated their bodies to science because you just start out very tentatively, making incisions and learning all about the muscles and the nerves, and it's fascinating. The cadavers are preserved in formaldehyde. It is a really strong odor. In fact. You spend hours in there, and you, you, you start to reek of formaldehyde. You walk out, and you still smell formaldehyde for hours. Well, the association between a human body and a piece of meat in the supermarket is pretty similar. So I would go to the supermarket. I mean, I wanted to have my meatballs, but I uh, just kind of turned my stomach off of meat at that point. So at this era, this is the early 80s, 
There was like diet for a small planet. I saw vegetarians in the room. Some of you may be longtime vegetarians. So there was diet for a small planet, moosewood kitchen. And I would say with the other students in med school, a lot of us didn't want to eat meat after being in gross anatomy. So we kind of got those books. And when you're in med school, you're also on a really tight budget. So beans are cheap. And we're going to talk later on about home cooked beans versus uh, cans of beans. But back at that time, you didn't find so many beans like in the cans all like there are today. So we would buy these bags of beans and cook them up. And I learned that I could make a weekly pot of beans. And that would kind of get me through the whole week. I could have beans on salad. I could have beans and rice. And I was good. So I would alternate the beans. One week it'd be chickpeas, black beans, pinto beans. It was excellent. So I kind of got this habit of making the weekly pot of beans, and I've been doing it ever since. Also, being a busy doc, even though I love to garden with a passion, I don't have time for a vegetable garden. Some years I've tried. It's been a running battle between me and my local woodchucks. So I've kind of I've bagged the gardening. But over the last 20 years, I've always supported community-sponsored agriculture. Any CSA members out here? Excellent. Well, a CSA was how I really learned how to cook vegetables, because there I was. And you know, this, I used to get it actually delivered to my house. That was perfect, because I would just leave the door open on Tuesdays, and the bag was there Tuesday afternoon. But I mean, kale, I didn't grow up eating kale or Swiss chard or things like that. But when you get that bag, you, know, you have to try to figure out what to do with them. So I got a, a cookbook called Marion Mirage, the like, Victory Garden Cookbook. It was a great, you know, I, I always had to modify the recipes. But it had like, what do you do? How do you microwave it? How do you steam it? How do you boil it? How do you bake it? The portions. So I got a lot of ideas from that book. And it's, it was kind of my go-to book. I've kind of like memorized it, I think, at this point. But anyway, anyone who starts on a vegetarian diet needs certain resources to get going. And that was certainly one for me. So even though I was this long-term vegetarian, it was only after Dr. Esselstein came in 2008 that I came on board with this idea of not uh, having dairy the way I did in the past um, and going to a, more of a no-added oil diet. So that's what we're talking about today, a whole food, plant-based diet. And sometimes you see it abbreviated WFPB rather than using words like uh, vegan or vegetarian. So this kind of describes what the food is. It's whole food and it's plant-based. And in 2013, a group of physicians at Kaiser Permanente in California looked at all the research out there in terms of diets you know, and, and trying to answer the question, what's the healthiest diet for the general population, as well as for people who have diseases like hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol. And they came up with the recommendation that physicians should consider recommending a whole food plant-based diet for all their patients. And I just wanted to include this picture to show that these are all foods that taste really good. So it's not like a whole food plant-based diet tastes bad. I mean, when you think of berries and vegetables, they all have a, a lot of flavor. And that's important that I have to keep reminding patients. And the diet is healthiest because it maximizes nutrient-dense foods. It minimizes processed foods, oils, and animal foods, including dairy products and eggs. And it's possible to bake lovely things without eggs. Like, you can make great pancakes even without eggs. In the beginning, you don't really it's hard to imagine that, but it's possible. Um, it includes fruits and vegetables, both raw and cooked. And in terms of plant protein, there's abundant plant protein from beans, lentils, and soybeans. Um, it also includes seeds and nuts in small amounts. 
And I'll come back to serving size in a little bit. And it's naturally low in fat. So what this is defined by is what it includes, not necessarily what it avoids. And the other point is that plant food comes in a whole package of nutrients as well as fiber. When we look at some of the research on vegetarians, this is just some, some general comments, that they have half the risk of diabetes as meat eaters, they have lower blood pressure, longer lifespan, lower prevalence of obesity, they eat more fiber, which reduces both colon and breast cancer, and they do not have increased risk of osteoporosis. Uh, despite what the dairy industry would have you think, that you need to have milk in order to have strong bones. It's not the case. Antioxidants. These get a lot of play. You see a lot of advertisements for antioxidants. I'm not going to try to pronounce them all, um, but you get the picture. That these are really important compounds. They're very protective, and they are found in this variety of lovely uh, fruits and vegetables. So you can see the marketing hype that antioxidants are added, but I think I'm trying to make the case that they're in balanced proportions in the food, and it would be more beneficial to eat the whole food, such as the, um, the vegetables, beans, fruits, et cetera. And part of doing this research, I, two particular food sources came on my radar that were probably under included in my own diet, and that are cranberries um, as well as red cabbage. Like, I always like red cabbage when it appears in someone else's dish. In those CSA bags, I used to get the red cabbage, like, in the fall. But now I'm starting to try to incorporate the red cabbage into my salads and in, into other food. It always adds a nice crunch and flavor. I do want to mention that <coughs> coffee and cocoa are also rich in antioxidants. And that's why it's sometimes good to add cocoa powder to foods. That doesn't mean we can go out and eat lots of chocolate bars but the cocoa powder is rich in the antioxidants. So we could talk about antioxidants for a whole hour, and maybe we will at a future time. This is a website called fruitsandvegetablesmorematters.org. And that's, uh, I think that's on our resource list. All right, let's talk a little bit about the nuts and seeds. And I see Maura Jones, one of the dietitians, just walked in. And I love how she has models of food. And I'm going to start bringing this to the office, because this one-third cup serving, is about the amount of nuts and seeds that are good for you, the serving size. And this is 10 walnut halves, which is uh, one ounce of walnuts, and that's a third cup serving. So the idea is to have about the serving of walnuts sprinkled throughout your day. So that could be three walnut halves on breakfast, three chopped up on your salad at lunch, and then some for a snack later on. This is really important because sometimes when I tell my patients that nuts are healthy, they get the idea that, well, they're like a free food. You could just eat all you want. And um, one uh, woman was even going to BJ's and getting two pounds of walnuts a week. So that's not good. That's not good. So moderation is key, and this is what a moderate serving looks like. Now, why are nuts so important? Uh, the research has shown that eating a single walnut half per day appears to reduce the risk of dying from a variety of inflammatory diseases in half. This is really strong. I mean, if we had a pill that did that, there would be hype, marketing, advertising. You can just imagine. But this is just from a food. So this is a really important food. And when I want to talk about the universal benefits of uh, certain foods, this is one of them that people would consider eating. Now, some people have nut allergies. So this is off the table for them. 
So the idea is that uh, there's a lot of data out there about nuts. We're going to talk a little bit about omega-3 fatty acids later on. But walnuts are the, actually the healthiest one on the list. And in terms of seeds, these are also beneficial. Same idea, kind of as a condiment, sesame seeds sprinkled onto foods, pumpkin seeds are a great snack, sunflower seeds, and then you get into your flax seeds, chia seeds, and hemp seeds. Food versus drugs. I'm a doctor. And it used to be, before I had this whole food plant-based diet, I would have a certain diet for my people with hypertension. And then I'd have a diet for my people with diabetes. And then I'd have a diet with my people for cholesterol. And it was, sometimes I'd have to combine two out of the three or three out of three. It really got mind-boggling. So now it's, my life is actually easier because what I can do is recommend one diet to help treat and or prevent all three of these common conditions. So that's really good. Now, our corporate agenda in America is really to push drugs on people and also to push processed foods. And I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that these corporate roles are really to make their own profits. They're really not interested in your individual health. That's up to you. And we have really powerful meat lobbies. We got the dairy lobby, the egg lobby, as well as fish lobbies. They're all out there. But I have to admit, have you ever heard of the broccoli lobby? <laughs> no, no broccoli. No bumper stickers that say, got broccoli. They're even the poor person who had the Eat More Kale campaign, you know, the Chicka Flicks people came after him. So um, anyway, um, I think you get the point that this is up to all of us to shop that perimeter of the grocery store where we're not going to find the processed foods. And I could not really talk about uh, prevention without talking about salt. And I love this slide uh, for education. And it's from a medical source, and I go over it with patients all the time because on the bottom here, 70% of the salt that we eat is in processed foods from the grocery store. And you are not even going to see it, because that salt is inside the food. That's the salt that's inside the can of soup. It's inside the frozen dinner. It's inside the bread that you buy. It's in the Cheerios cereal that Soda. people, pardon? Soda. 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 Yes, even in soda. That's right. So you have to look at labels to see about this uh, sodium. And 50% is found in restaurant foods. And that's why if you don't eat a lot of salt and you go out to eat, the food just seems so salty afterwards, and you find yourself drinking a lot of water. 13% is what we add during cooking or eating. And only 4% of the sodium is found naturally in food. And this comes up in my counseling, because I'll say to patients, well, do you add salt to your food? And they'll say, oh, no, Dr. Krasnoff, I don't add salt. And then I'll say, well, do you ever eat frozen dinners? And they'll say, oh, yes, yes. I had, you know, Stauffer's Lean Cuisine last night. It tasted so good. Okay, I say, how much sodium's in that Lean Cuisine? And they have no idea. I mean, because most people don't actually look at the labels. But as a kind of a general, like, easy-to-remember number, just think about how your recommended sodium allowance in a day is 2,000 milligrams. And that's a teaspoon of salt. The average American actually eats a lot more than that. They eat 4,000 milligrams or even 6,000. But the average is 4,000. And if you're looking for like a healthy serving, you're looking at 500 milligrams on a frozen dinner. So look at, the, look at the frozen dinner. Look at the serving size. So I tell people 500 servings on a frozen dinner. And it helps when you look at things like uh, tomato sauce just to kind of have maybe 300 milligrams as a ballpark. 
And I know a nutritionist would probably maybe give you more fine details on that. But you do really have to look at processed foods uh, in terms of salt. And salt is important because we all think of salt contributing to elevations of blood pressure, but it does a lot more damage than that. It actually damages your heart and your blood vessels beyond the effect on blood pressure alone. And it contributes to high blood pressure, strokes, heart attacks, kidney disease, and other health problems. So we got to be mindful about salt. Now, we all know, because our mothers told us, that you are what you eat. But there's a little twist on this now, that you are what you eat eats, that some of our food sources are carnivores, like a salmon. That's a big fish that eats a smaller fish that eats a smaller fish. So we have to think about this with fish as well as with meat. Now, in terms of meat, this is some, a recent research study, 2013. And I don't know if everyone in the room is aware that red meat, eating red meat increases your mortality. But that has been well documented in the scientific literature, that higher meat intake is associated with increases in chronic diseases, in all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease such as stroke, and cancer mortality, in particular colorectal cancer and lung cancer. Each daily increase of three ounces of red meat is associated with a 12% higher risk of death. And processed meats, such as your bacon, sausage, hot dogs, these are all even worse. They have a 20% increased risk of death. So this is fairly graphic, but meat really is the new tobacco. <laughs> On the left, you have your franks. On the right, you have your cigarettes. And you can reduce your risk of 23 types of cancer and also the chronic diseases such as emphysema, coronary artery disease, simply by ditching meat as well as by ditching tobacco. And what's bad about meat? It has a lot of known carcinogens, the heterocyclic amines. These are even worse when the food is grilled or barbecued. There is a lot of iron in meat, which has harmful effects, and there's nitrates in the cured meats uh, such as bacon. Okay. At the end, I have a little time to talk about the paleo diet, if anyone is interested. But people are piling on the bacon and the processed meats, and it's really not very good for their health. What about farm salmon? What about farm salmon? Is it safe? Well, unfortunately, it's not very safe. And farmed Atlantic salmon, which is the kind that's served in restaurants, it's the highest source of industrial pollutants. Uh, which we don't, we not only eat, but we store those pollutants in our bodies, in our body fat. And the human exposure to the environmental pollutants is primarily from the ingestion of animal fat and fish fat. And when they look for PCBs in the grocery store, when they go around and test all the food, they find that the highest levels are in canned, I'm sorry, in, in the farm salmon. And why is that? PCBs, that stands for polychlorinated biphenyls. And these were actually banned in 1979 because they are carcinogens. However, they have persisted in the environment because they degrade very, very slowly. And when they compare the farm salmon to the wild-caught Alaskan salmon, the levels are actually 10 times higher. And they, they found PCBs in areas where there were no factories to dump it into the water. They just, they travel 
through the air and they travel through the water. So these PCBs have been found to accumulate in the body fat of people. And this is the thinking now, in fact, six studies have shown that eating salmon um, on a regular basis leads to accumulation of these PCBs in the body fat of people. And in fact, heavier people have more PCBs than lean people. And this may be a contributor to why heavier people are developing diabetes, that it may not be at, really at an epidemic rate, that it may not be totally related to insulin resistance, that it may relate to toxins as well. So this research has been around for a long time. There were articles back in 2006 about PCBs um, accumulation, but I don't think people have been putting it together and I don't think that the message has been getting out to the general public. Bottom line, it's never too late that uh, good food and exercise can promote health and prevent illness even in older adults. We're gonna talk a little bit about the DASH diet. That stands for dietary studies, a dietary approach to stop hypertension. And it's been shown that the blood pressure lowering effect of eating a diet that's higher in fruits and vegetables and lower in salt, that becomes apparent within two weeks of making those changes. Which is why when people come in with hypertension, I say, let's try fruits and vegetables first because prior to starting medication, we can actually help you by, by changing your diet and see an effect fairly quickly. <clears throat> the next point that I like to make is that genes load the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. And this is really important because a lot of people feel like they're doomed. They say, you know, my parents had this disease. I think I'm gonna get it too. Why should I bother? Why should I give up these foods that I love? And sometimes people will use this as an excuse. They'll keep on um, eating unhealthy foods, they will smoke, because they think, oh well, I'm doomed. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna die of a heart attack anyway. But what we know is that genes do not determine disease on their own. That genes function only by being activated. And the activation of genes is influenced by what we eat. So genes can either be activated or they can lie dormant or be repressed. So we essentially each have the power to kind of eat ourselves into better health or into worse health. So that's an important point. And of course, before people make a major change, it's important that they chat, check with their healthcare providers because some people uh, with diabetes or hypertension may find that they need to adjust their medication and need less medication. So one day <laughs> I started to talk to a patient about trying a plant-based diet, and she says to me, is this a Margot fringe diet? And actually, I saw this woman this morning, and I remind, I told her I'm giving this talk today, and, and so she laughed because she did remember that that was a direct quote from her. And I recognized after she said this that I needed to market myself better, that if my patients are coming in and asking if this is a fringe diet, I have to let them know this is actually cutting edge, and it's really scientific, and um, that it's something that they might not hear about just from anybody. But I recognized also that I needed to do a better job educating my colleagues. This was two years ago that we had this conversation. And Dr. Eselstein, he had come in 2008. So I said, okay, four years have gone by. Let me bring it up to our, our weekly education meeting. And everyone came, people were really interested to hear more about uh, plant-based diet. So now I would say that all the internal medicine physicians here have had uh, some exposure uh, to this information. But I, my patient did have a point that a lot of physicians don't talk about diet with their, with their patients. And they give several excuses. 
One of them is they say they don't have time. And I totally get that. We are really under a time crunch. We have a lot to accomplish in each office visit. A lot of doctors feel like they don't have the background. That they, you know, we, we are, believe it or not, you get almost minuscule education about nutrition in medical school. It's less than 20 hours over four years. It's really, really small. And I talk to medical students every month. They come and they work in my office. And I'll say to them, have you heard about forks over knives? And, and like, they look at me like, no, they have not heard about that. One did. And he went to Loma Linda, uh, which is a medical school that was really into nutrition. So um, he was actually really well versed in nutrition. His mother was also a physical therapist. So I think that could have something to do with it. But um, in any case, the other reason that docs don't talk with their patients about nutrition is that, in general, they're fairly, they lack optimism that people can change and incorporate nutritional um, advice. So I'm obviously very optimistic, and I keep bringing it up again and again. <laughs> and I love this slide. I, I borrowed this one from Maura Jones, um, saying it's really a quote from Hippocrates. And he said this in 430 BC, which is, let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. And I think that's a really strong statement. And they do talk about forks over knives in cardiac rehab you know, after people have a heart attack. But I would like to offer that that's really too late and that we need to try to prevent the heart attack and let food be thy medicine prior. So does anyone here remember the food pyramid? OK. I always found the food pyramid pretty confusing. And I never use it when I'm sitting down with a patient. I'm not going to kind of pull it out and say, well, let's make sure you have 6 to 11 servings of grain a day. It's just it's like, who thinks about it when they sit down to eat? Now, I realize a dietitian could use this if they're helping someone to plan a menu, like for a whole day or a whole week. But it's not really very useful, user friendly. So in 2005, they revised it. And it's still pretty confusing, but I did like how they added exercise with those steps. That was pretty good. However, I'm really happy to announce that the food pyramid has been replaced. OK, we no longer have to think of the food pyramid. And I really like this, this idea of choosing my plate. And this is an excellent website, choosemyplate.gov. And the bottom line message is fill half your plate with vegetables and fruits at every meal. So that means that you don't just eat vegetables at dinner. A lot of people have this idea. Oh, I'm going to have vegetables tonight, and that's good enough. Well, you're not going to get in all your servings of vegetables if you just wait till the evening. You, know, you can have, I could actually eat vegetables for breakfast. I know I'm probably in the fringe. Uh, but in other cultures, people do eat savory breakfasts, and they're very good. Um, and particularly, if I'm going to do a full day of an endurance sport, I'd like to have that bowl of kale. But anyway. Um, People can eat uh, fruits with their breakfast and certainly need to have half the plate vegetables and fruits at lunch and at dinner. Now, you can tell that the dairy industry um, did get its influence here because they put a cup of dairy over there. And that could easily have been water. Um, and certainly, people could substitute um, soy milk or oat milk, some other type of dairy, uh, some other type of non-dairy beverage. In terms of the grains, the messages have half your grains be whole grains, which I think is good. And for the protein, um, the vegetarian options would be to eat lots of um, plant-based proteins, like tofu, beans, tempeh, seitan, etc. 
So this is a really uh, excellent website, and they really go into details. If you want to learn about eating more vegetables and serving sizes for different ages, et cetera. The other thing that I really liked about the website and the 2010 nutritional guidelines are that they recommend beans for everyone. In other words, not just for people um, who are vegetarians, but even people who eat meat, poultry, and fish regularly should also eat beans. And the serving size is pretty small, half a cup a day. And with beans, you get the best of both worlds, because they count as both a vegetable and a protein. Just so you know, green peas, lima beans, and green string beans are not considered beans for this purpose. Okay, they're vegetables. Now, back to the, um, oh, increased lifespan from beans. This was a really fascinating study of taking people who were 70 years old at the start of the study and following them uh, for the next period of time. I think it was about 10 years. And they found that people who eat beans regularly, it was the most important predictor of their survival. And this was in different countries throughout the globe. And basically, as little as a half a cup a day could be considered a dietary fountain of youth. Um, in Japan, people eat tofu, soybeans. In the Mediterranean, we think of the Mediterranean diet. It includes chickpeas, white beans, lentils. Now, what's the number one reason people don't want to eat more beans is that they're worried about flatulence. <laughs> However, when they've actually studied flatulence, and there are many studies of flatulence, they, they found that an increase in flatulence was anticipated, but not really confirmed in research studies. So the message is, if you're not familiar with eating beans, start slow, eat some. If you do experience a little flatulence, it'll go away in a few days as your body adjusts. In terms of the blue zones, this is a fascinating uh, book. I, I do recommend it. And it um, was written by Dan Bootner, who's a National Geographic like, author, who went around to different countries around the world where people lived to be centenarians, people over 100, and were thriving. And he found these hot spots. And he describes nine of them in the book. He talks about Okinawa. He also talks about uh, the coast, uh, part of um, Costa Rica, Sardinia. So he goes to these different areas and studies the people, what they eat. And lo and behold, the cornerstone of their diet is plants and beans. On average, people would eat meat only five times per month. And these were small servings. And it was mostly pork, interestingly, in these uh, variety of very traditional cultures. And the people in Okinawa had a practice in which they would be mindful as they ate, and they would stop eating when they're 80% full. So it's, it's very different than the American mindset of kind of piling all the food on your plate and finish your plate. And they didn't do that in their culture. They would eat till they're 80% full. And I challenge you to try it, kind of to be more mindful. It's certainly a good practice. And um, it could lead to some benefits. And Dan Bootner describes these diets as having a plant slant, which I thought was kind of a nice jingle. So I recognize that here I am talking about going plant-based maybe full time. And some of you might be a little bit skeptical. So I want to describe a worldwide movement called Meatless Monday. Had anyone heard of Meatless Monday before? Great. OK. It's been um, a popular campaign in 34 countries. It's also um, in the state of Vermont. And uh, this year, I went skiing at the Craftsbury Outdoor Center, which is one of my favorite places. And I was there on a Monday. And I love Craftsbury. I can always get great vegan food when I'm there. And it's a great ski, ski center. 
and they had, it was a Monday, and they had at all their meals, they were only meatless, and all the meat eaters were very happy as well because they had several choices of meat-based diets. So uh, Meatless Monday is actually a really widespread movement. This is a great website, um, the Meatless Monday website, just in terms of looking for recipes. And there's a wonderful curriculum for Vermont schools, and they emphasize that foods that are bad for you are bad for the environment in terms of pesticides, water pollution, talk about global warming, the impact of animal agriculture, and that how resource intensive it is to, to grow animals that it takes six kilograms of plant protein to produce one kilogram of animal protein. And then they give examples of types of meals, uh, not only salads, but bean dips like hummus, um, rice and beans I talked about on the right there. You can see some lovely uh, soup that has both greens and uh, beans in it at the same time. So Meatless Mondays, check it out. Next, I want to talk about how vascular health is much more complex than cholesterol levels alone. I think we do patients a disservice when we just emphasize lowering cholesterol without looking at the bigger picture. And I talked about Dr. Eselstein briefly. Uh, when he spoke here, he described a study that he started in 1985. He had 24 patients. And on his, in his study, he used statins to lower cholesterol. There was intensive coaching and support. There was no exercise or meditation component uh, that was seen in Dr. Dean Ornish's uh, program. The diet is pretty much what we talked about in terms of a whole food plant-based uh, diet. He had people avoid anything with a face or a mother. In other words, no meat, poultry, fish or eggs, no dairy products, no oils. It's a very strict diet. These are all people who had heart disease. They, in his book, he talks about making fat-free salad dressings, no cooking oil, about learning how to saute with just a little bit of water, um, no sweeteners, no refined grains. And in his initial study, there was no nuts. He found striking benefits at, at five years. Of his 24 patients, only 18 adhered to this program. For six, it was just like way too stringent. The 18 who adhered, though, had no cardiac events. And these were all people who previously had had stents or bypass surgery. Their cholesterols dropped significantly from 237 to 137. And 11 of the 18 had angiograms. Uh, there was no further stenosis. And eight of them actually had regression of their lesions. And this has been seen in, in follow-up studies, this regression, something that people thought was like, once you had it, you were stuck with it for the rest of your life. Now, in the six patients who didn't adhere, 13 of them had new cardiac events since leaving the study. And the, one of the powers of the Forks Over Knives video is that you get to see these patients 25 years later. And of the 17 patients who adhered, they have not had further progression. In other words, they haven't had more heart disease, more stents, et cetera. And you get to see them on the DVD kind of thriving and looking very healthy and good. So he makes the point that he was able to stop the process of coronary atherosclerosis rather than simply slowing it down, and that sharply lowering cholesterol levels is safe. This was kind of a question, like would people have cancer or develop other problems, and they haven't, and also blood sugar levels stabilized. In terms of his insights, he's a real optimist. When you really get that when you hear him talk, and he says, don't underestimate the ability of people to adopt a healthier lifestyle that people are interested in changing their diets. And his, one of his slogans is that in cholesterol lowering, moderation kills. 
So he's talking about people with heart disease as opposed to people who are looking at a prevention. And I think also all this like nut literature has come out since he designed his diet. So these days I wouldn't put someone on a nut-free diet. I think the walnuts have really been shown to be beneficial as I'll show in a minute. A key point is that within eight to 12 weeks, the fat receptors in the brain downregulate, and people don't crave the same foods they did before. They just lose their appeal. I mean, like chocolate cake, people can walk by it. They'd rather have that bowl of strawberries. And so people can actually lose their craving for junk food and fat food and fatty foods. That's important, because when people start out, they think, oh my god, I'm going to be like depriving myself. But they're not depriving themselves. Their taste change. So this is why we're all in it. We want to slow the aging of our arteries. And this might be some kind of scientific part of the talk, but bear with me. Our large arteries stiffen as we age. And this is the aorta, which brings the blood down to our legs, and the carotids that brings the blood up to our heart. And this explains why some people develop hypertension, heart disease, and strokes. However, some 80-year-olds have arteries which, which are just as supple as 20-year-olds. We know that high blood sugar is very detrimental to arteries. And we're, Ray will take care of that. Um, and that we're going to talk about endothelial cells. And it's this decline in endothelial cell function that contributes to arterial stiffness. And here's a slogan that I like, which is that you're only as old as your arteries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here we have the endothelial cell. This is the inner lining of the artery. And this is our protector. It's kind of a straitjacket that protects the, the um, arteries. Here's healthy on the left. Then on the right, we have an artery where there's atherosclerosis. The endothelial cells are damaged here. And when they're damaged, the cholesterol goes from the blood, and it makes what's called a plaque. This plaque contains these cells in here, which you can't see, but these are foam cells. They're kind of filled with cholesterol, and they have a lot of debris. And this plaque is what ruptures and causes a heart attack. It's very bad. We really want to prevent these plaques uh, from forming in the first place. So what about plaque rupture? We know that in order to protect ourselves, we need more arterial protection than just lowering cholesterol alone. We do know that 2 thirds of heart attacks occurs in people with high cholesterol, what we think of as a cholesterol over the level of 200. A third of heart attacks are in people with a cholesterol level from 150 to 200. That's a range where if I were giving you a medication, I, that would be my goal, to get your cholesterol under 200. But that's not really a protection, because a third of people who have heart attacks, their cholesterol is in that kind of OK number. We know from the Framingham study that there's almost no heart disease if the cholesterol level is under 150. And people who eat a plant-based diet, their <coughs> cholesterol levels are often under 150. Now, if you had a heart attack today, and you went to the emergency department, and they would do an angiogram, and they would see if one of your large coronary arteries were blocked. If it's blocked, you'd get a stent. However, that stent on, on the angiogram, it's not going to tell you about the smaller, these little plaques that I showed, because it doesn't show that small level of detail. The angiogram's just getting the big arteries. So we need other ways to treat people after they have a heart attack, after they get a stent. So they all go on statins because statins not only lower cholesterol, they also have an anti-inflammatory effect. So we get back to these endothelial cells. 
And the way the endothelial cells exert their effect is that they make a gas called nitric oxide. And how the endothelial cells function is a barometer of how people's vascular health is. As people get older, the endothelial cells are not as effective as they are in younger people. But here's where exercise comes in and why it's so important. Because exercise actually causes the arteries to release more nitric oxide and to re kind of counteract some of the stiffness. The nitric oxide will relax the red blood cells. It'll increase blood flow. It'll prevent the white blood cells and platelets from getting sticky and starting to build up the vascular plaque and keep the artery cells from moving into the plaques. So here's where the walnuts come in. That if you eat a serving of walnuts a week, it's only going to reduce cholesterol levels a small amount, 5%. But there's a 50% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So this is why walnuts have other heart-protecting benefits. And the way they work is they improve the ability to relax and open arteries. And how do we know that? What's the evidence, Dr. Krasnoff? The evidence would be in a lab through something called a brachial artery tourniquet test. And so they have a way where they can test the effect of foods on arterial health. And literally, it's a blood pressure cuff, and it measures blood flow before and after eating certain foods. If you feed someone a high fast food diet, just one meal, the Big Mac, fries, maybe uh, ice cream for dessert, um, that's going to constrict the flow in the arteries by 50%. It's a marked constriction. So then there's this damage, and the body has to repair itself. Olive oil. Some people think of it as a health food. However, it also constricts the arteries by 30%. Not as bad as the fast food. Canola oil is not as bad. It constricts the arteries by 10%. Salmon constricts a little bit. It does have some saturated fat in there. It constricts it by 2%. However, walnuts improve the flow. It's within an hour. It's an immediate thing. Yeah, yeah. So these, these, the, the point being that food doesn't just wait to affect you until you're old. I mean, the food affects you every time you eat your meals. Now, in terms of diet's impact on the endothelium, if we sodium restrict by 50%, where there's a 20, 25% improvement in the endothelial function. So this is where that salt is really harmful message comes in. And of course, those who eat the most vegetables have the best endothelial function. So this is how the vegetables exert their benefit. Exercise and weight loss also really help. Now, fish oils improve endothelial function. We could talk about fish oil for probably about an hour. It's a very complex topic. It's being actively studied right now. It's kind of hard to make a really strong recommendation. We'll know more in 2017. So I can't really address it in full detail. Um, but I want to talk next. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about omega-3 fatty acids from food. So I'm just kind of dangling the fish oil out there. To let you know, in terms of how it works, it has effects on the endothelial cells. All right. How are we going to implement this whole food plant-based diet? First of all, we all have choices. And these are two of my favorite quotes. The first is, and I tell myself this actually quite often, that if I'm not hungry enough to eat an apple, then I guess I'm just not hungry. I think about this when I go to the refrigerator. And oftentimes, I pick up the apple. Um, another one. I'm going to show a clip in a moment from Dr. Michael Greger, who's got an excellent website called nutritionfacts.org. And he said, when you eat animal-based foods, you miss the opportunity to eat more plants. 
<laughs> okay, that's another way of thinking about it. Okay, now my video. Aha. Okay, here we go. In terms of some foods that are fiber-rich and easy to eat, the no-sodium canned beans, oatmeal, multigrain hot cereals, baked sweet potatoes. Okay, as anyone who's my patient knows, one of Dr. Krasnoff's favorite foods that she's always emphasizing. And for me, having some sweet potatoes in my refrigerator is just part of my daily life, and it keeps me happy <laughs> knowing that I have a sweet potato waiting for me when I get home. I eat them cold. They're in my bike jacket. They, I cross-country ski with them. No matter what I do, there's usually a sweet potato in fairly close proximity. Um, Well-cooked vegetables are really uh, fiber-rich as well as easy to eat. Uh, fruits that are stewed or baked um, are easy. Uh, tofu, a good way to use it is to add it to soup or tomato sauce. And then certainly nut butter on soft bread. Whole foods are best. And this is where we have to emphasize that food is a whole package. Um, it's not just the idea of we're going to get this nutrient or that nutrient. The nu good nutrition begins as the whole food is chewed into smaller pieces and swallowed. 
And observational studies of people who eat vegetables, as, we, as I said earlier, they have lower incidence of cancer. So it's been tested to try to extract some of the carotenoids or the vitamin A and make a supplement and give it to people and see if they ate the supplement, would they get less cancer? Well, in a very large study of smokers who were given vitamin A supplements through beta carotene, they actually had an increase in cancer. They had to stop the study early, terminate it early. So it's really important that people get the message that the, the whole food really is best because there is such a combination of rich nutrients in these foods. Omega-3 fatty acids, um, since we don't know yet about fish oil, you can hedge your bet and have some flax seeds. The ground flax seeds are very nutritious, a rich source of omega-3 fatty acids. And the recommended amount is just a tablespoon a day. This can be sprinkled and added on oatmeal, added to salad. Uh, we've talked about the walnuts. Um, in terms of if you did want to use some oil for cooking, your canola oil would actually be preferable because it has higher levels of omega-3 to olive oil. For some uh, vegans, people said earlier, there were some vegans in the crowd. Some of them will uh, use a, an algae-based uh, supplement. And as I said, the fish oils, the answer's not in yet. Vitamin B12. Anyone over the age of 50 needs to take some type of vitamin B12 supplement in their diet. And the reason why is that it's harder as you get older to absorb vitamin B12 from food. Uh, and 10 to 20% of older adults are actually deficient in vitamin B12. It has important roles in the nervous system, cognition, as well as in the blood. And so the range is it's kind of flexible. It's not like it's absolute. This is seen in all the Centrum Silver and all the senior multivites um, or in a separate supplement that you dissolve under the tongue. <laughs> Vitamin D, I think everyone has heard about. Uh, it's important to get a, at least 800 international units of vitamin D. Usually about 2,000 is what we need to maintain a good body level. And it's found in foods like fortified milk, fatty fish, cod liver oil, and eggs. But if you don't eat those foods, you definitely need to get a supplement. Resources. Okay, the book on the left is the one that I mentioned uh, before. About half of it is the science in the background that I talked about in terms of the arterial health and his study. The other half has got some really basic uh, recipes and how-tos. Um, Dr. Esselstyn's wife is a nutritionist, and she wrote the second, kind of helped them with the second half of the book. And she has a cookbook that's going to be coming out uh, in September. And I think it looks pretty good from what I saw um, on Amazon, but obviously I can't say yet. The Dr. Neil Barnard's 21-Day Weight Loss Kickstart is something that I recommend to patients. And I've had some really um, favorable commentary from people. Uh, what it does is it takes people through the process of making plant-based diet changes gradually uh, over the course of 21 days. It also has recipes kind of for people who don't cook at all, like really basic. And then like if you're a little bit more into gourmet, kind of how to kick it up a little bit. That's an excellent resource. Nutrition Action is my go-to newsletter. I'm always happy the day it comes in once a month. Since I prepared this talk, I signed up for their website. And now I get like a daily Nutrition Action um, update. And so if you're into nutrition, I recommend that website. The, um, the newsletter, just for people who don't know about it, this is a food advocacy group. They don't accept any advertising. Um, it's a nice balanced way to find out what's going on. It's not totally plant-based. There's articles in there about fish and chicken and, and basically um, uh, big pharma, the agricultural industry. And I, I do recommend it highly. I have a question. Can yeah. I go on the website and actually get that? No, um, you have to be a subscriber. 
I mean, you, it's if you go to the website, you you now get they've got like kind of, kind of check it out. But it costs twenty dollars for a whole year. You become a member of the organization, and you get the the ones that look like this that come in the mail. Oh, so I have to be a member. Um, I think I think the old versions are available. The, the old versions are okay. Yeah. Are they all there? I'm not sure, okay. but I know you can get some. All right, so check out the website. I, I stand corrected. It's it's a it's a really nice. Um, um, it's vetted. The, the editorial board is very sound in terms of it doesn't represent the different industries. It's actually more of a scientific. And they'll have like features like on supplements or vitamins. Okay. In terms of other uh, resources, the, the DVD that I showed in here, um, I now get a daily DVD on a different aspect of nutrition. And it's a nice way to look at the scientific uh, evidence. And he, he'll bring in together like maybe six recent studies on a particular topic. I highly recommend the Choose My Plate website, um, .gov, because it's really got a lot of excellent information on meal planning and recipe ideas. The Fruits and Vegetables More Matters, also uh, a nice resource. And of course, registered dietitians. These are people that can sit down and do a consultation with you for an hour and really get into the what you like to eat, how you like to fix it. And then they can work with modifications and kind of personalize it based on your own individual health. The co-op food store has wonderful cooking classes. They have a couple coming up on vegetarian eating. Um, those are going to be in June. You know, in the Lebanon store, they have that new kitchen area that looks like a very enticing way to learn more about nutrition. I also emphasize the bulk bins. If you're going to eat more beans, it's nice just to buy a cup or two cups and, and try out a particular kind. And they even have little recipes um, with some of those beans. And that's a really economical way, as Dr. Greger showed in his video. Local farmers markets. The farmers love to talk to you, and I like to go to the farmers market. And if I see a new vegetable, ask what it is. I mean, that's how I've tried different forms of turnips. And you know, you can talk to the farmers and say, "Tell me about this," and they'll tell you kind of ways to prepare it, and it gives you that kind of hands-on contact. It's probably not too late to sign up for community-sponsored agriculture uh, with some of the local farms, and they now have um, these programs where the farmers actually come to the medical center a couple of afternoons a week. It's a way to pick up vegetables right here for workers uh, on their way home. Forksoverknives.com is another website. So lastly, John Lennon talked about give peace a chance. I would like to encourage you all to give peas a chance. That's peas, lentils, beans, and think about Meatless Monday. And that's a way um, that people can incorporate this, um, trying to have the idea they can have a whole day uh, without meat. So thank you very much. I've got time for questions. Now I have these microphones, yep, so that the whole audience can hear. Is, do you want to help with the microphones? You have to just press this in. Press it in, and then you can talk. Okay. Okay. Great. You have to. Yeah, okay. Okay. Okay, well shout out then. Melina will get the mics going. Okay. Um, for somebody with coronary artery disease uh -huh. who follows Esselstein's diet, yeah. how do they find a cardiologist on staff here who is supportive? <laughs> um, it sounds like the internists are on board. Yeah. Um, are there cardiologists? Does anyone else want to try to answer that question for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just say that I'm a 
would be a physician at DHMC that would say this is a bad way to go. I mean, there's, I think generally physicians try and support whatever kind of health initiatives patients are taking. And, uh, you know, unless you run into opposition, uh, I don't think most physicians are going to. Uh, just as a follow-up, I was surprised to go to an appointment and have a cardiologist say he didn't he hadn't heard of he hadn't heard of Esselstyn? He had not heard of Esselstyn, so obviously we need to find somebody else. Yeah. I would say the cardiac rehab people, the people after the heart attack, they do the hands-on counseling people. Well, I, they do recommend it. Yes, yes, and they do. So how do you get to a cardiologist who you can work with? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I would maybe talk to your internist. Because it has to, you know, medicine is a team sport. You have a whole team. You have your internal medicine, your primary care person. It could be internal medicine or family medicine. And they're going to work collaboratively with the cardiologist. So I would talk to the internist first and have them do some research for you. Yeah, we got lots of questions. Great. Okay, let me start here in the front, and then we'll move the mic around here. Yes. Uh, I already know that I love yogurt and I always heard egg is the perfect food. Mm -hmm. So could you just say a little bit more about why we have to avoid dairy? Well, we could talk about that at length. I, I would say that um, with dairy, one of the concerns is some of the proteins, the casein protein, being linked to cancer development, being a cancer promoter. So there are uh, soy yogurts. In fact, there are unsweetened soy yogurts that people can eat. Um, fermented foods are good, so there are other forms of fermented foods. So it's not like it's all a negative. Um, and eggs, eggs have been linked to increasing developments of atherosclerosis, elevation of cholesterol levels, and hardening of the arteries. So they're not, they were considered the perfect food, but there are probably healthier foods. And when you eat like eggs and yogurt, you're not eating the plants that contain all the phytonutrients and all the other beneficial things. So, yes. Is, I just want to let everybody know, there is another um, meeting in here at 5.30, and this place has to be completely empty. So two more quick questions, unfortunately, and then um, we'll have to empty up the meeting. Okay. There's one down here has been waiting. Yeah. I could ask you questions all night long, but I'll only do one. Obviously, you're a big fan of walnuts. Yes. If I use a scale from 1 to 10, and walnuts are a 10, where would other nuts like cashews, peanuts, and so forth fall? OK. Um, Moira, Moira, do you want to take that? Uh, well, I've seen uh, scales on the antioxidants. And I think that's one of the big things with walnuts is not only are they high in omega-3s, but they also contain a lot of beneficial antioxidants. Uh, so I would just ask you to look online and, and look at comparing. You can't rate any other nuts? As far as I, what I've seen, it's walnuts, then almonds, then like uh, macadamia, pistachios, and then cashews kind of come in above peanuts, which are probably the lowest. Yeah, peanuts are actually not in the same health food category because they're high. In, yeah. Okay. One more quick question. Yeah, probably quinoa is an excellent, I mean, that's more of a seed than a grain. But I think these days, I would talk to the person at the co-op. They have wonderful programs for people with celiac disease in terms of, you know, kind of optimizing it. They've got food lists that are over there. Or even a nutritionist might be helpful, because celiac disease is a challenge 
to make sure that it's got you know great balanced nutrition. Thank you so much, everyone.